Good morning. Merry Christmas to you. We can only say that for two more weeks, can't we? If you are visiting, welcome to Harvest Bible Church. I see a few new faces in the crowd. Maybe you're visiting with your family. Maybe you're just here for the first time, but I hope you're made to feel welcome. We have been studying the Gospel of Luke for about a year and a half or so. And we are in chapter 20 in the, uh, what we would call the, the Easter narratives. It's Passion Week. And uh, I love doing that at Christmas time. I mean, I love that we're doing it at Christmas time. I don't get to do it every Christmas. But uh, we've seen Jesus, his three-year ministry, three-and-a-half-year ministry, has come to an end. He's coming into Jerusalem. The king has come. And his entry into Jerusalem fulfills the, right down to the day, as we looked at last, uh, last couple of weeks, uh, from the prophet Daniel's prophecies. Jesus comes into town right on the day that he's supposed to. The Messiah is cut off. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, it says the Messiah will be cut off after the 483 years predicted by Daniel. After a decree went out in 444 B.C., he's the Christ, mathematically. He's fulfilled so many prophecies up to this point, it's unbelievable that people find Jesus unbelievable. That in itself is unbelievable, especially the religious leaders of the day. So Jesus comes into town. We celebrate it typically as Palm Sunday. But Jesus actually came into town and entered Jerusalem on a Monday. And when he came into town, the people were hailing him. Hosanna, which means save now, God. It's not a name. It sounds like a name, doesn't it? Hosanna. They're not calling him Hosanna. They're saying save now, God. They think Jesus is the Messiah to come in and and remove Rome from power. That's what they're hailing him as. He's healed the sick. He's made the blind see. He's even raised the dead, cast out demons. His authority has been credited in casting out demons to the devil himself. Oh, you only cast out demons by the power of the devil. They called him Beelzebul. But Jesus is certainly, we know, to be the son of God. His authority comes from God. As he comes into town on that day, on that prophesied day, and that day was the day, it's the Passover week, remember, and on that day, it's called Nisan 10. It was Nisan 10. It's actually March the 30th, A.D. 33, but that's Nisan 10 in their day of reckoning. And that's the day that the, the Lamb of God is to be selected for the Passover. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. On the 10th day of Nisan, select your lamb. You're going to slay him on Nisan 14. And that's the day of the Passover when Jesus dies. He is the Passover lamb. So there's some typology coming to pass here. And Jesus comes into town to the hails and the, the glory of the, of the crowd. Our Messiah is here. He goes into town and he looks into the temple. I should say he goes into the temple and he just looks into the temple. I, I like to see him just looking around. It's been a long day at this point. And he looks in. And he sees there, not a quiet place, but a ruckus. You know, when we come to church, we expect a church to be quiet, especially the worship service. We're not a Pentecostal church, so it's going to be calm and, and quiet, and, and people are going to be reverent, we hope. And if it's not, we think there's something wrong. I mean, what if you came in at 1030, 1045, about the time I step up here, and people are going crazy? And what if there's a booth up here, people are selling shirts, and, and over here they're selling drinks and ice cream in the back? Hey, whenever you want to, get up from the service and go back there and refresh yourself with some ice cream, put some sprinkles on top and come back. You'd be thinking... There's something not right about that, is there? This isn't a movie. It's not a baseball game. You're not here to have fun or be entertained. We're here to worship. If there is no worship but there's entertainment, there's a problem. And so Jesus walked into the temple that day on that Monday and observed it and took note of it and went back to Bethany, about two miles away, just over the Mount of Olives. Came back on Tuesday, knowing what he would do, and he came in and he went through a, a, the place and the court of the Gentiles there at the temple and overturned the tables and scattered all of it. No one stopped him. As I said last week, that means something amazing. You might have seen the temple police they get together and say, hey, go subdue that man. He's killing our business. By the way, this business is the business of the deposed high priest named Annas. Annas, who has a son-in-law named Caiaphas, who is the high priest. Annas was running uh, a mafia scheme. He was the mob boss at the time, uh, an ex-high priest, a mob boss, and he was just as bad as any mob boss you ever heard of defiling the temple of God. 
making money off all the pilgrims coming in to the Passover. Jesus went in and single-handedly ruined the bazaar of Annas on Tuesday. And then he began to teach in the temple. No one really quite knows what to do with him. What do we do with this guy? They're apparently scared to death of him. On Wednesday, we're in chapter 20. What Joel read on one of those days, if you were to cross-reference it with Mark chapter 11, verse 27, this is Wednesday. Jesus has cleared the temple the previous day. And by the way, he cleared the temple three and a half years prior. He clears that temple twice. John chapter 2 tells us that he did it at the beginning of his ministry. And in the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see him doing it a second time. The gall to do it. They question him the first time. And now on this time, he does it. It's Wednesday of the Passion Week. He'll die in two days. So in chapter 20, verse 1, on one of those days, you might write there Wednesday. While he was teaching the people in the temple. This is the temple that he cleared the previous day. Everything's gone. All the, all the, the selling and all the, the ruckus of people walking through the temple for a shortcut to the other side. Jesus has now cleansed it, cleared it. Everyone's sitting still and listening to him teach. Now, if you're Annas and you're the chief priests, which are consisting of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all those religious leaders, what are you thinking? Who does this guy think he is? I mean, what would you think if someone came into your house, just walked into your house, ladies, and said, this is ridiculous. We need to rearrange this. We need to put this over there, take that off the wall. We need to paint this, that. What would you say to such a person? Some of you wouldn't say anything. You'd just get them. But who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You might even say that to your husband when he moves something around. So here he is on that day. He's teaching the people in the temple. And note that he's preaching the gospel. That Greek word is actually, he's gospeling. It's a participle. He's gospeling. He's teaching the people and gospeling. We're not told what he was teaching, but that would have been a good, a good sermon to hear, don't you think? Anything Jesus would say, which we have in the Bible. Unfortunately, you just have to hear me teach it. So he's teaching the people, instructing them, and preaching the gospel. While he's doing this, the chief priests and the scribes, these are members of the Sanhedrin, and the scribes with the elders confronted him. That word for confront in the New American Standard, which I read from, is actually just means to stand next to. It's not um, a, a word necessarily of they're there to get in his face. It just means they're standing there. But they're there to confront him. They're just standing there. No one's really chomping at the bit to mess with Jesus. Don't you love that? I mean, Jesus is not, you know, I, I grew up when I was a kid. The first movie about Jesus I saw was in the early 70s, um, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was played by a guy named James Powell. And James Powell, which is interesting, was, a, was an Englishman with blue eyes and long hair. Interesting person to play the Jew from Nazareth. He had a long, flowing, beautiful hair and nice nails and soft skin. And I always thought, Jesus looks like kind of a wimp to me. Big blue eyes. He never blinks in Jesus of Nazareth. Never blinks. That's kind of the, the feature, those big blue eyes. And he plays a great part. But that's not what Jesus looked like. Jesus would have had a big honking nose. He would have had smashed fingers and cuts here and there. Jesus was a manly man, and this guy goes through and clears the temple, and the chief priests don't really know what to do with him. I love that scene. They just kind of standing there, verse 2, and they spoke saying to him, they didn't yell, just kind of very politely, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Again, what gives you the right? What are they talking about? Two things. Number one, Jesus is teaching. When you teach, you have to have authority. You might come into a church and look for a new pastor, and you might wonder, where did this guy go to school? Who does this guy think he is? Who taught him? Who trained him? Who's he mimicking? Who's he trying to be like? But we do that. We do that in, in, uh, in churches. We don't have to. You don't have to go to school to be a preacher. But we typically can find out what a person's theology is by what school they go to. Or if they're a doctor, what kind of doctor are you? What school did you go to? What's your training? If you're a school teacher, where did you go to school? Where did you get your training? Where did you get your certificate? Where did you get your authority? That's the first one. The other thing that they're asking is, where do you get the authority to clean this temple out? Like you just did the day before. 
Who gave you the right to do that and who gives you the right to teach? They know that Jesus hasn't been ordained by any of the rabbis of the day. They don't think that, uh, they, they don't think that, well, they don't think, they don't know where he came from other than that he was born of a peasant girl named Mary and he was raised in Nazareth which is the hick town of Galilee, the hick town all over Israel. If anyone wants to, if you want to be the lowliest place in town, make yourself from Nazareth. And Jesus was from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Tell us, who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority? By the way, the, the scribes in those days taught, as did the Pharisees, in such a way, as you might hear some people teach today. I step up and I teach, okay, here's what God says, and I give you verse by verse from the Bible. And you know that the authority I'm teaching comes from the Bible. Um, I don't uh, say, here's what I came up with. I had a dream last night or a, a vision yesterday. I don't do that. You wouldn't be here if I did, would you? Um, back in those days, if you wanted to teach and have authority, the authority you did was you would step up and you would say something like, Rabbi so-and-so, 100 years ago, said such-and-such. And Rabbi such-and-such said so-and-so, said this, and that, that would be a sermon, is rabbi said this, rabbi said that 100 years ago. And if you want to be um, considered in some churches to be somewhat of an authority, you always quote dead guys. The longer they've been dead, the, the, the better it sounds, you know? You quote back to the beginning of the church fathers. I'm quoting from Irenaeus who lived and who died in 185. Here's what Irenaeus said. Oh, wow, Irenaeus, he must know. Well, Irenaeus had the same Bible we do. People today will say, well, John MacArthur said this, John Piper said this, R.C. Sproul said this, and you'll get a whole slew of quotes. That's not bad. Those are good men. The, the three I just listed are very good men, and they're, if you're going to quote somebody, those are the ones to quote. Why? Because they're quoting the Bible. But sometimes they give their opinions as I give mine. I try to set off my opinion and say, guys, this is my opinion. Here's what I think. Take it or leave it. But mostly, here's what the Bible says. But when Jesus taught, he didn't quote rabbis. Because Jesus is God. He doesn't have anyone to quote. What he says is divine. And they're wanting to know who gave you this authority. You don't teach like we do. And it was always appropriate in those days that when you asked a rabbi or if an, if, when you asked a question, the real academic response was to ask another question in return, which is what Jesus does here. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things or who is the one who gave you this authority. By the way, if Jesus says God, he's falling into their trap. He can't say God. There's no proof of that. And what, really what they're trying to do is he could say one of two things. He could say, well, I come from this group of people. They give me this authority. To which the, the Pharisees, this, this group of men, would say, okay, then, then your backers who are behind you they must be coming in to form some sort of a revolution in our, our city. We need to get them. If he just said that, that would be, he would be saying, I come from humans. This group of people sent me, and that's why I teach. That's where my authority is. That would create a ruckus in Rome or in Jerusalem with regard to Rome. If he would have said, from God, well, then he's saying, okay, I know that you chief priests think you're from God, but I'm really from God. And the chief priest thinks they're coming from God, so if he says, I'm coming from God, now we've got another clenched fist, kind of like a Democrat-Republican thing in our day. Who's right? Jesus doesn't fall into the trap. He just answers their question with a question, kind of putting back on them what they do to other people. Don't you hate people to do that? When you ask a question and they ask a question in return? I had a guy at our church. He used to be a deacon here. He moved away. He said, Lance, I appreciate you always answering my questions. He said, the previous pastor I came from, every time I'd ask a question, he'd always ask me a question in return. I just want an answer. He said, I'm an old man, and I don't have time to check it out. Give me the answer. <laughs> okay. I didn't know I was doing a favor, but I just thought he wanted an answer. But I have learned as a man in counseling, especially with my wife, that when, when, people, when they ask questions, well, what, men? They don't really want an answer. I will also ask you a question. You tell me. You want me to tell you by what authority? I'll answer your question, but you answer me this one. Was the baptism of John, he's speaking of John the Baptist, that's different from John the Apostle. Was the baptism from John, of John, from heaven or from men? Now, Jesus is not avoiding it here. Note this. If you ever play poker, and I would never 
But I'm told that when a bet goes around the table, I'm only told this, when a bet goes around the table, you can check, the bet is there, you can check, you can check. When you get back to the original guy, he can either check the bet, I'm told, or he can raise it at this point. Jesus is raising the stakes. He's going all in here. He's not just going to, he's not, he's not avoiding the question, he's raising the stakes by asking them a question, and he gets right to the heart of it. Guys, you want to know my authority? Let me ask you a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? It's a simple question, isn't it? You see, John the Baptist came on the scene as the messenger that goes before the Messiah. You see, Jesus is not the Messiah without John the Baptist. John the Baptist had to go before Jesus, clear the way, and point to him as the Messiah. Without that person, Jesus cannot be the Messiah. He could do everything he's done, but without John the Baptist, he can't be the Messiah. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But God fulfills everything he said he would do. The Old Testament said, I will send my messenger ahead of you. John says, I am the fulfillment of the voice crying out in the wilderness. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3, 4, and 5. I am the voice going out in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way of the Lord, of the Lord, of Yahweh. That's what he says. And then John the Baptist, he does that. He baptizes people. People are coming, we learn from the, from the Synoptic Gospels, it says they're coming from all over Judea. That's all over Israel and all over Jerusalem. They're coming to John to be baptized. They like this guy. And he's telling them, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Make way the path of the Lord. One day, John looks out and sees Jesus walking and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That messenger, that herald who goes before pointed to Jesus of Nazareth as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if you think John is a true prophet, then Jesus has to be the Messiah. If you believe John is a false prophet, then Jesus can't be the Messiah. So he asked them, the baptism of John, Remember, he baptized people in repentance to repent of their sins in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Was it from heaven, that baptism, or from men? They responded in verse 5 among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? If we say from men, all the people stone us, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. This is where they get in their little huddle. I've got a question for you. Was the baptism of John from heaven, or was it from men? And you can see, and there's kind of a silence here among these chief priests and elders. Guys, gather around. Gather around. And they do. They've got their little huddle. What, what are we going to do? What do you think? Well, if we say he's a real prophet, then he's going to ask us why he doesn't believe him. If we say that he's not a prophet, then the people are going to send us. What are we going to do? Just this. Anyone who has to think about an answer is going to lie to you when they answer. You know that? Where have you been? Uh, let me think about that. Um, I'm sorry, what was the question? Kind of, kind of like that, that, you know? If you can't get a direct answer, you have to suspect whatever comes out of their mouth. They've gotten together. They know whatever they say, they're doomed. So they all become agnostic. We don't know. Verse seven. We do not know where it came from. What a bunch of cowards. Folks, if someone ever asks you about the truth you believe, unless you are a true agnostic, tell them. Is Jesus the Christ? Um, let me think about that question. If I say yes, I'll lose my job. If I say no, I'll deny my, I don't. I don't, I don't know. Just say, I don't know. <laughs> if it means losing your job, lose your job. And it's God's way of saying, I don't want you in this job. One woman came to me one day and she said, there's a church they were going to and they went and asked the Sunday school teacher. They said, uh, they asked the Sunday school teacher, tell us about election. His answer, you don't need to know that. What a coward. Even if you don't believe in election, tell them, here's what the Bible says about the doctrine of election. But don't ever tell anybody you don't need to know that. What if they would have said, is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but by him. What if they said, 
you don't need to know that. That just divides people. Folks, if it's in the Bible, we're supposed to talk about it. We're supposed to believe it, whether you like it or not. But people do that. Oh, you don't need to know that. I, I don't want to separate you or, or do this or that. People do that with all kinds of doctrines. You get a Rick Warren type church. Okay, well, let's talk about whether women can be preachers in a church. Well, the Bible says they cannot. Rick Warren says, well, that's not a big deal. Let's not make a big deal about that. Folks, if it's in the Bible, I'm thinking it's a big deal. We have this arbitrary uh, way that we, we look at the Bible and we say there's primary things and there's secondary things. Show me where that is in God's word. Show me where Jesus ever said that, where a prophet of God ever said that. Where we can somehow make this arbitrary move and say that's important and that's not. Speak the truth. God has us here to believe in his name, to believe in the name of Jesus, and to preach the truth until we die. That's why we're here. If we were only meant to be saved, then the moment we're saved, we would die and go to heaven. But he leaves us here to preach the truth. Give the truth. If you're struggling with that truth, pray through that. Lord, I don't tell God in, all, in no uncertain terms, Lord, I don't like this doctrine. I don't like it, but it's here and I have to do business with it. Please change my heart because you will never be able to change the text because God doesn't change. And because God doesn't change, God's word doesn't change. In any generation, I don't care what generation we live in, the truth is the truth. And Jesus spoke with that authority. We don't know where it came from. Well, if you don't know where it came from, you chief priests and elders of Israel, who's going to know? Folks, if you can't be led by people that are going to preach the truth, you're in the wrong church. And if the church is small like ours because somebody preaches the truth, it's probably a good church. 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 member churches are typically people flooding in to hear what they want to hear. It is not an entertainment arena. We are here to worship God for what he has given us. His word, he gave us the word, which is Jesus. He gave us Jesus' death. He told us about his resurrection. He gave us the free gift of salvation. We come to praise God for that. Why would we water that down? The truth is given to us. We preach it. We preach it with authority. We don't know. Well, go find out. And don't check back into your job as a chief priest until you found out and can tell us. So Jesus says, if you can't answer that question, I'm not going to answer the question you asked me. If you can't do two plus two is four, I'm not going to teach you calculus. If you won't answer that you know where John's baptism came from, then you cannot understand the answer I'll give you about my authority coming from God Almighty. So he tells him a parable, another one. He tells him this parable. This parable about a man who plants a vineyard. He's a landowner. The landowner here is going to represent God. The vineyard is going to be the people of Israel in the land of Israel. Let's take, see how it unfolds here. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. Okay, that makes sense. You plant a vineyard. It's yours. You own the land. Um, by the way, the Old Testament says that when you plant a vineyard, you can't um, take any of the crop from it until the, the uh, fourth year. In the fourth year, you'll dedicate that crop to God. And in the fifth year, you can eat the grapes of that vineyard, but only in the fifth year. It's interesting that Jesus is here in the fourth year. We'll see how that factors in here. But he goes away a long time. It looks like apparently in the fourth year he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one they also, also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. In other words, they apparently don't see these other people I've sent as having any authority. I'll send him my son, the heir to my land. They'll see him as having authority. Now, by the way, each one of these slaves that is sent by this landowner who represents God, these represent the prophets. 
So this vineyard is God's. In fact, you'll see this parable um, first given in Isaiah chapter 5, 700 years prior. This vineyard represents Israel and the land of Israel and the people of Israel. It's God's vineyard. God's entitled to the produce of that vineyard. He's entitled to send anyone he wants to get it. But the people he knows in Israel were not tending the vineyard well. They weren't obeying him. They weren't in any way worshiping him. They were worshiping other gods, foreign gods. So he sends prophets. Prophets in the Old Testament, they may sound and look crazy to us, but they merely go and tell people, repent. The wrath of God is coming upon you. Repent. If you repent, God will restore you. If you don't, he's going to destroy you. But the Israelites killed the prophets. That's what they did to them. Isaiah was cut in half with a saw. Tradition has it. doesn't say it in the Bible. Jeremiah, if you ever read Jeremiah, all this man did was preach the word. They stuck him in a, in a dry pit full of mud and let him sink up to his waist. Pulled him back out. He kept preaching. He told the king at the time, Same thing he told them when they put him in that. Well, imagine a deep well. This is what you get. I always imagine what Jeremiah must have been thinking. A well, a hole in the ground. Deep. You have to go pretty deep to get water. Let's throw that guy that's preaching the truth to us down into that well. It's dry, but it's pretty muddy down there. We'll see see if that helps him out. You know, give him some time to think. I imagine Jeremiah up to his waist in the mud going, really, really, God? Is this what I get? And the answer from heaven would be, yes, Jeremiah. Preach the truth. I didn't tell you you were going to have a mega church, make lots of money, and have all the love and respect from everyone. Just do what I said to do. So prophets do. Come what may. They use their God-given authority to speak God's word. With every one of them, Israel killed them. I shouldn't say everyone, most of them. So he says, I'll send my son now. Verse 14. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that we inherit the so that the inheritance will be ours. Now this is just insane thinking. Uh, even then, if you if you lost the if you killed everybody in the family that owned the land, you don't get to keep the land. It shows you the madness of their thinking. Does that remind you of a modern day? Of course, today, you just go move into somebody's house who went on a two-day vacation and become a squatter, and the house becomes yours. You can even sell the house, as some do. And I hope somebody fixes that. But this is the madness of their thinking. Let's kill the son who's going to inherit the land. If we kill him, we get to keep the land. No, you don't. But they thought so. This is what happens when you rail against the truth. You become crazy in your thinking. Do you see that today? The craziness in the world today, even in the church of what people think, they call themselves Christians and think they can make their own rules. They say things like, God will allow us to love anyone we want. I don't see that in God's word. God wants us to hate which is evil. Romans chapter 12, verse nine and following is love that which is good and abhor, which is to hate, loathe that which is evil. What is evil today is called good. You and I speak out against it and we're hated all the more in society. Which will you choose? The acceptance of the world? Kind of like these chief priests up here. Well, we don't want the people to dislike us, so let's just plead agnosticism. They'll stone us if we don't. We don't want that. So the son comes, they surmise that if they kill him, they get to inherit the land. Verse 15, so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That's, of course, Jesus. And Jesus asked in the parable, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What do you think he'll do to them? Now, anyone hearing this story is going to say, well, I hope he gets them because that's not right. In Matthew's gospel, they begin to answer the question. And then they hear themselves answering the question and they realize, hey, we're condemning ourselves. It's really quite comical. What should the the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he should get them and throw those bad people out of there. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We just condemned ourselves. Luke's gospel skips that over, more of a summary. 
He just says, here's what it will do, verse 16. He will come and destroy these vine growers and give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. May genoita in Greek, that, that, that powerful, absolutely never could that happen. Oh, it happened. These chosen people, Israel, then and now rejected their Messiah. They killed him. In spite of the fact that they knew he was the Messiah, they killed him. And God cursed their land that he said he would bless. And God expunged them from their land. And by AD 135, it was gone, and he gave their land to another, the Gentiles, who promptly named it Palestine after their staunch enemies, the Philistines. That's what Jesus said would happen. That's what happened And the times of the Gentiles have played out over history with that vineyard of God, that chosen land, the land of milk and honey being run down by anti-God, Jesus Christ rejectors. And right in the middle of it is a Muslim dome of the rock to signify to the world it's been given to another, at least for a time. Because where does Jesus return? Right there on that Mount of Olives. Right out looking out over the east gate. And there's a huge earthquake right there in that valley, the Kidron Valley. And it separates and Jesus goes right into that rebuilt temple and sets up his kingdom. That will happen. That's not what happened. That's not what the Jews thought would happen in their day. And when it didn't, it angered them so much they killed him which is what they did. And Jesus tells them, this is what the landowner will do. This is what God Almighty will do. He will destroy it, and he will give the vineyard to another. Oh, no, may it never be. But Jesus said in verse 17, he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? And he quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 down to verse 26-ish. He says, the stone which the builders rejected This became the chief cornerstone. That's interesting. What? That's a strange condemnation. This psalm, I'm going to turn over to it in Psalm 118. So I don't misquote it. In its context, Psalm 118 was actually supposed to be a psalm of great rejoicing for Israel. uh, Whereby they uh, saw this as, as this Psalm of ascents, they come up to Jerusalem as they praise God and um, what everyone else on the planet stumbles over, they receive God, their Messiah. David writes, the stone which the builders rejected, 118 verse 22, has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. That's what the Jews are supposed to say. Even today, when you build a house, at least in the South, not, not in places where your, your home has a, has a basement, but in the South, we build homes and we first start with a foundation, don't we? Lay that foundation. Uh, if you've got a little extra money, you want to make the foundation a little bit thicker, put some, some stuff in it to make it a little bit firmer, because in the South, it's going to go dry and it could crack. You want a good foundation. You want the, the ground that it's on to be nice and level and uh, do whatever you got to do, what the engineers do to make it Make it appropriate for the concrete that con- and that uh, foundation. Well, in those days, you didn't lay concrete. You, you went and found a cornerstone. You found the first stone, the first cut stone, a nice, not round, but a, a, a rock that you cut that's solid, and you put it down, and everything relates to that stone. That's the cornerstone. Well, in the analogy that Jesus is giving in Luke and, and throughout is... The stone that that should have been selected to build upon was rejected. Jesus is calling himself that stone. I am saying, he's saying, I am the foundation for your life. Everything you believe, everything you do, your entire worldview should come from me. I am the cornerstone. But you didn't like me, so you tripped over that stone. How about that? You're thinking, why didn't he just say it another way? Well, he didn't. This is the way he said it. 
And people in that day would say, okay, we find the best stone. That's our cornerstone. Everyone in any situation might say, hey, that's the biggest and best stone over there. Everyone agreed? Yeah, let's go grab that stone. Let's make that the cornerstone. Let's build all the stones from that. That's our cornerstone. With Jesus being the cornerstone, this spiritual cornerstone, people saw him and said, we don't want that one. And so they tripped over it. And in the Old Testament, when you trip over something, when you fall You fall to your demise. You and I, we fall, we get back up, we dust ourselves off, we make a joke about what we just did. But the imagery of the Old Testament is when you fall, you fall and you can't get back up. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Note verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on Whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Don't miss this, folks, because all he's saying is, I am the Messiah. My authority comes from God because I am God. If you don't see that, then you are tripping over the stone. Not only that, after you trip over it, the stone is going to come up and smash you. And you will be forever condemned. Like shattered pottery falling on a hard ground. This is what happens to those who reject the stone. Where does your authority come from, Jesus? I am God. That's where my authority comes from. And if you trip on me, meaning that if you reject me, I will destroy you. That's what he's saying, isn't it? If you receive me, I will build my church on you. You will be one of the the tiny stones built upon the rock foundation that comprises my house. So ask yourself, have I stumbled upon the stone of Jesus? Or am I building upon him? Have I taken God's word and made it say what I want it to say? from my own authority or am I letting it teach me and building my life on it you see some of you might go away call yourself Christians and say yeah I'm going to take the Bible with a little grain of salt here it is the 21st century and uh, you know I know what was said back then was written by men and you know you know how men can be especially with regard to women uh, we're going to tweak this a bit we're going to make this a little bit more readable Make this a little bit more acceptable. Tripping over the stone. Folks, you don't have that right. God did not give you that right. His authority or no authority. We preach his word and we obey his word or we preach our word and obey our word. God has spoken. He's made it so clear that he is the Messiah. That's why Jesus was born. God became flesh to give us eternal life. I recognize that this is a condemnatory passage, but what's clearly implied is by receiving him, we have eternal life in his name. That's the wonderful gift. That's the gift. Today, as we close today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And celebrating the Lord's Supper, we're not really celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're partaking of the Lord's Supper to celebrate the death of our Lord who went so far as to die for those who would trip over him. As to die for those who hated him. Isn't that what he said at the cross? Lord, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He forgave, at least in some sense, in some temporary sense, those who murdered him. And so we partake of the supper today with a little wafer, a little vial of juice to remember our Lord's death and his future return where we will eat with him at the marriage supper, which is described for us in Revelation 19. It's an amazing supper. I mean, do you all look forward to supper like I do? A good supper? Am I, am I, I'm the only one, really? That, that, that's how you respond. Amen. It's okay to say amen. So let me say it again. Do you look forward to a nice supper? I mean, I'm looking at some of them, you're going, yes, you do. <laughs> I'm feeling the button on my coat going, yes, I do. 
folks, I mean it. Ham it up. What's coming is not just turkey and ham, and you say, we don't do that anymore. Good, that's a good thing. Maybe you do enchiladas. Maybe you do steak. It's all there, folks. The marriage supper, the lamb. We went to a wedding this past Friday, and, and the people were quite wealthy, and, and it was as good a food as I've ever had at a wedding. There were three different lines, three different places. If you, if you wanted prime rib over here, you get prime rib. If you wanted pasta and chicken over here, you go over here. If you wanted this, these lean tacos with fried avocados, you getting hungry? You go over here. If you want all three, go one, two, three. We sat down, comfortable chairs, sat around people we loved, and I thought, man, this is good. The band was a little loud, but at that feast, it's not going to be so loud. And if it is, it's not going to bother us. And the food is going to be even better. It was just a low-level taste of what Jesus has promised us, and that's what the supper is. It's not just to commemorate his death. It's to cause us to think about that meal we have that lasts for eternity in celebration of his coming. Now, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we invite you to partake with us. You don't have to be a member of Harvest Bible Church to do so, but to be a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian. If you're not a Christian, please don't partake of it. It's not for you. There's no shame in denying the cup as it comes by you. I'm sorry, I don't profess to know Jesus as you folks do. We totally respect that. We don't want you to partake of it. It's not for you. It's for God's people. You, by partaking of it, you're not going to close a loose end and maybe that will help you. In fact, the Bible says it will condemn you all the more if you partake of it and don't believe it. It condemns you all the more to partake of it if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ and in him and him alone we have salvation and all authority rests in him. If you're a child and you're not sitting with your parents and you want to partake of the supper, you will not be given one of the the little vials of juice that we take. If you parents want your children to partake of it, they must be sitting with you. That's your decision. It is for believers. Gentlemen, if you would begin to pass the elements out. During the time that these men pass the elements, I ask you to be in prayer uh, and thought over who Jesus is. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He has told us that. He has demonstrated that. He died on the cross as the Lamb of God. Think about his death. Think about what he went through. Why? Because he took your death and my death. I'm the one that deserves to be up there. You deserve to be up there. Think about it. Cry about it. Smile about it. Praise God over it. And when the elements are passed out, we will partake of it together. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, he said, a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason among you, uh, many are weak and sick, and a number sleep, that is, die. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. What he's saying is, is to come to the, the place where we celebrate the supper, the, the death of our Lord, uh, you don't have to be sinless. I had an, a woman ask me years ago, she said, Lance, will I ever be able to partake of the supper? I was abused as a child. This woman was in her 50s or 60s at the time. She said, and I cannot let go of it. I said, I understand. I, I get it. Not that I was, but... Um, I said, not forgetting what happened to you in your past doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. Forgiving and forgetting don't go together. We remember what happened. That doesn't mean we haven't let go of it. Some people think, well, I haven't let go. I haven't forgiven. You can forgive right now. You might have to forgive again later, but you can forgive. When we come to the Lord holding a grudge, when we hate another human being, especially one uh, within the church of Jesus Christ, we are in sin. And if you can't get past that, then you should abstain. We would partake of it unworthily. If you're struggling with sin, partake. That's what a Christian does. We struggle with sin. 
We struggle with it. We're saved from the penalty of it, but we continue to struggle with it. That's why we need Jesus. We can never not need him. Please don't partake of it in an unworthy way, in a way by which you think that that partaking of this will somehow wash your sins away. No, we partake of it because our sins have been washed away in celebration of what God has done for us through faith in Jesus Christ. You have an all-in-one cup. If you're new, I, I know it's not real reverent, and I apologize for that, but let's make it reverent. Let's hold it as reverent. There's a little piece of cellophane on the top of the first opening. If you open the first one, you're not going to get that little piece of bread. And if you open it quick, you're going to get the the juice all over your nice dress or coat. So be careful with it. But open that top little piece of cellophane and you'll find the bread. Just as a practice, I never take the whole thing. I would choke. So uh, if you want to break it, it's, it's not sacrilegious to break it into quarters if you want. The apostle says this. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus gave a piece of bread at that Passover feast where they broke bread and drank wine. And he said, men, this bread is representative of my body that's going to be broken. It's going to die. Partake of it. Partake of me. And do this in remembrance of me. We do the same. We remember Christ's body dead on the cross Paul continues he says in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood that means the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant the old covenant of of the uh, the law of God the commandments of God those ten commandments whereby we look at him and we miss every one of them we fail, we fall short of God's standard at the first one, the last one, and everything in between. The grace of God transcends that law in the new covenant where Jesus kept the law. He did it. And what he did, his victory is our victory when we connect ourselves to him by faith. The new covenant is in Jesus' blood. It's not on stones, etched in stone like the law was. No, the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. And he takes the cup. Be careful. Open that second one there. He takes the cup. He holds it up. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We remember the blood of Jesus on that cross. Paul says, for as often as you drink, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaimed the Lord's death. We just ate and drank two elements that commemorate the death of God in the flesh. God became man at Christmas. He lived our life. And then he died our death, our life that we couldn't live. He lived it perfectly. He died our death to take the penalty because that's the penalty of our sin, isn't it? Haven't all sinned and fall short of the glory of God? And isn't the wages of sin death? Jesus took that death. We just proclaimed it. The night before he died, on Thursday night, Jesus told the guys when he partook of this, he partook on a Thursday, not the Wednesday. He said, guys, I will not eat or drink the fruit of the vine again until I come into my Father's kingdom, when we do it together. That night, that last night, the night before he was crucified, that Thursday night when he died on Friday, that was the last meal Jesus had with his disciples. When he returns, we eat again. The marriage feast. We not only proclaim the Lord's death in doing this, and professed our faith that his death is our life, We remembered that there's a meal coming that we look forward to, that we long for. You might say, well, I don't long for that. Pray that you would. Let me close this. Lord, thank you for Jesus. God the Father, thank you for God the Son. Thank you for leaving us your Holy Spirit. May we be awed over what you did. You became flesh. You became one of us. 
You endured the torment of being a human. You endured the torment of being betrayed by your own people and hated by the people you loved. You gave of your life and you asked forgiveness for us. You died on that cross. You shed your blood. People made fun of you. They scorned you. They beat you. They called you names. You bled and you died. You said it is finished. You willingly gave up your body, your life for us. You allowed us to commemorate it. You gave us life by offering us you. Believe in me and you shall be saved. Father, I pray that there be people here today, if there are, that do not believe. They would leave believing because you opened their eyes. I pray that those today who have been acting on their own authority, doing their own thing, and yet calling themselves Christians would surrender to you. And if that be me, that you would convict me, that it's me. God, I pray that you would set our minds on your kingdom. That we would pray thy kingdom come. That we would pray that you would return. That we look forward to that meal on that day thy kingdom come Lord thy will be done in Jesus name we pray amen may God bless you my friends Merry Christmas you've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas 